Hello and welcome to episode number 113 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, December 6th, 2010. On this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined once again by Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. Ben is a permaculture designer and entrepreneur based in Vermont. Ben Falk, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. Good to be here again. Well, are you in the Mad Valley, uh, the Mad River Valley there in Vermont? Yes, that's, that's where I am. Okay, because the Agro-Innovations Podcast is actually broadcast on uh, WMRW out there, which is a low-power FM station in the uh, Mad River Valley of Vermont. Great. Recently, you sent around an email with some photos of a new crop that you are working with. Give us a briefing on the species and variety that you are working with. Yeah, the uh, the rice crop that we've been uh, experimenting with, we've we've it's it's brown rice, and we've been uh, researching a handful of different varieties, um, but especially focused on really two varieties in particular. Uh, it's all short grain brown rice. Uh, Ariza sativa haponica, so it's not you know the wild rice that uh, a lot of people are familiar with being grown in the northern climate. And some of the varieties we're looking into are the Norin strain, Hayayuki strain, uh, Tomonashiki, and a few others. There's really only um, a handful of accessible, short, relatively short season rice varieties. Um, but there could be many more if we really chose to to breed them. Um, if, if some researchers got behind uh, got behind this, we could grow rice probably in, in much cooler climates than it's been grown in for thousands of years. Okay, uh, how did you initially get involved with this crop? Uh, well, I've heard it was being grown by um, uh, the Akogi farm down in uh, Putney, Vermont. They've kind of really pioneered this a bit. Um, as far as growing in patties, there's another guy down in um, Western Mass in Conway who runs a South River South River Miso company who's been really growing rice in a more upland type of configuration, not in patties, for I think 10 or 15 years. And the Akogis were really the first to try at scale to grow rice in patties. I think starting a number of a number of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, and um, I heard about their their research and visited the farm, and then I grew rice in uh, in buckets last year or two years ago now, and then grew our our seed for this year's uh, trial that we did the 2010 growing season, where I uh, constructed patties and grew the rice that I had grown the year before in buckets to seed in patties. Rice is one of the most widely cultivated grains in the world. Why did you choose this species and variety, basically in what seems like an attempt to expand the area where it is cultivated? Right. Well, these varieties that we have kind of um, been looking into are just the, simply the shortest season varieties, and that's, that's really the limiting factor to growing rice in a, a cold to very cold climate like Vermont. Um, you know, as you say, rice is grown throughout the pan-tropical world. It's, it's a pan-tropical crop, you know, feeding more people than I think any other crop um, on the planet. 
but it is a pretty long season crop, you know, from germination to harvest uh, is you know, well over 100 days for, I think, every variety. So we have a pretty short frost-free season here. Um, so we need a short season variety to work with, at least to start, and then maybe develop varieties that are even shorter season over time. Um, so there's only, it was easy to choose, the sh to know we need the shortest season varieties possible. Um, as far as why rice, you know, it's a, it's a broad question, but, a, but an important one. You know, rice is really the only example of, um, of a grain crop that's been grown, that's been able to be grown in the same place for hundreds, if not thousands of years, over and over again without exhausting uh, the possibilities of growing that crop again the following year. Um, it's really, as some people have said, it's the only example of a truly sustainable monoculture. It's not really a monoculture because there's a lot going on in the patties uh, biologically, but for the most part, you know, you're, you're getting a, a single yield or, you know, you're getting a primary yield out of a, out of a rice patty. Um, and I think the reason that people have been able to grow rice for literally thousands of years in some places in the same piece of land and water over and over again is, is due to the water. The, the fertility um, delivery system is, is the water. Uh, gravity feed water coming down a hillside into rice paddies is the way um, that water is, has most often been used to deliver the nitrogen and other nutrients that the plant needs. Rice is a heavy feeder, heavy feeding crop just like other grains. But if you think about a terrestrial grain, we have to get fertility back into the field every year um, mechanically. So most of, of course, modern grain, we know what that looks like. It looks like, you know, giant manure spreaders or chemical, uh, you know, delivery systems driving over the fields to bring the nutrients back onto the site that were taken off the site by the, by the former year's crop. That, of course, is very energy intensive. It constantly compacts the soil uh, each time that's done, um, destroys the biology of the field quite heavily. So it's, it's you know, far from a sustainable way of getting fertility back on the site. Um, but rice is totally different. You know, we can just move water downhill from paddy to paddy from areas uphill where they pick up nutrients like we use duck, we use water that comes from duck, uh, duck pond that the ducks manure. Um, so that gravity, that, that kind of fertigation, you can think of it as gravity-fed irrigation. Fertigation is uh, such an elegant way to supp uh, supply the fertility that the rice needs year after year. So in some ways, it's almost like hydroponics. The rice, we grew these, this rice crop in very poor subsoil with a little bit of compost just in each hole where the, where the rice seedling went. But the rice really grew and thrived in the nutrients that were brought to it in the water. So we grew rice in very, a great crop of rice this year in very poor soils, but we delivered it nutrient-rich water. And that's easy to come by in our landscape. We have plenty of nitrogen in our landscape. It's just oftentimes we're losing it off our landscape in the form of, of water runoff. And rice patties are a fantastic way to counteract that. Okay, well, this is fascinating because um, it, it's interesting that many times we look at water as a problem or e either because we have too much of it or not enough of it 
or because it has too much nutrients in it or not enough nutrients in it. But one of the things that's interesting about water is when we include things like aquaculture in it, the amount of productivity that can be gotten out of a body of water, you know, is much higher than an equal amount of land. So I'm wondering, um, you know, it almost seems like you're talking about nutrient cycles as much as you're talking about fertility management and finding ways to manage those nutrient cycles uh, effectively. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head where it's really just managing our, our nutrients that are available in the landscape in all forms, not just in the form of soil or, or you know, solid nutrients, but in the form of, of nutrients that are already in, in solution in water, which is where we lose most of our nutrients constantly. So absolutely. Um, rice is really, you know, we could really revolutionize the way we manage um, our water systems on farms with rice as essentially, uh, rice paddies are essentially an edible constructed wetland. So we know we need wetlands to process all of the excess nutrients that are generated on a typical farm, especially if that farm has animals. And so in, in some situations we're building, you know, bioswales or constructed wetlands to deal with those nutrients, but rice is a crop that can, a very high value crop that can simply be grown in those areas that are needed ecologically to process these nutrients. Um, and in a hillside, in a hilly situation like this, like we're really the, as far as I know, this is the largest scale research trials that we're doing here of growing rice in, patty, in patties on a terraced hillside. It's really on about a, a 40% slope where we have these patties. So it's pretty darn steep. And it's very poor soil. It's, it's subsoil. There's not even any topsoil on the slope. So we're growing rice. It's an example of getting a, a yield, a very intense yield, probably about 5,000 pounds an acre, off of land that really is very unsuitable to most other production. It could be put into tree crops or with a bit of work into berries or, or perennial crops, but it's poor pasture. It could be pastured, but it's not great pasture. It would take a while to get to be very productive, and it's pretty steep, so it's prone to erosion. Uh, you're not going to be growing vegetables or any other grain on land like this without major work and even really bringing in, you know, resources from off-site. But with five gallons of diesel fuel and a mini excavator, paddies built into this ter- into this steep hillside have allowed for the production of about 5,000 pounds in acre yield um, in land that really is otherwise highly unsuitable to most uh, production, especially any other grain production. Um, we're, we're also looking into amaranth a bit, but you know, grain is a grain is a very intensive crop. We've as some people have said we've over weeded over weeded most of you know the country already and we've really exhausted many of our soils around the world from a heavy reliance on terrestrial grains. So water based grains, rice is the only one I know of, but I think there's other possibilities as well to to grow in patties. Um can really revolutionize. It could be a total game changer to agriculture and in climates that aren't that aren't um, growing rice already. You know, 5,000 pounds an acre is about double the yield of terrestrial grain. I think typical wheat, organic wheat yield is about 2,500 pounds an acre. So potentially double the yield on on land that you couldn't even grow the other stuff to begin with. It's pretty impressive. 
and again, the, the nutrients to grow this crop are, are really, these nutrients are available anyways, and the most, we have an abundance of them. We have too much uh, nitrogen running off of our farms into our local watersheds, into, the, into, the, you know, into Lake Champlain where I live, causing all manner of problems. There's, there's plenty of nutrients that are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, nutrient cycling in many of these regenerative systems. Um, not too long ago on the Agro-Innovations jo- uh, podcast, I was joined by Colin Sice, who is an Australian farmer that has developed um, something that he calls pasture cropping. Now, Colin is grazing animal herds in cool-season native pastures that are then planted to warm-season grains. Um one of the things that you've been talking about is having ducks in these ponds, and then this is enriching the ponds with nitrogen and other elements. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, from a permaculturalist perspective, how important do you think you see the animal component as being really one of the key drivers in the, nu- in the nutrient cycles of these uh, grain crop systems that we're developing? Uh, I think the animal aspect is pretty key. Uh, you know, we need the we need the source of of, of nitrogen in the system. Um, so that could be that could be it, that could be gotten maybe in in other forms if you're by the ocean and you have a, a source of nitrogen from, let's say, fish waste. Um, but but again, that's an animal source. So I think the animal component is key. We have, we have four ducks here, and uh, that's plenty of nitrogen to grow our whole rice crop of about 100 pounds plus or minus of rice, just, just four ducks, which we also have, of course, for their eggs um, and for slug, you know, slug control in the gardens. Uh, they have many other uses. But it, does, it doesn't take many animals, I think, to grow a whole lot of rice uh, because it's delivered so directly you know, in, the, in solution uh, to the plants. We put the, um, the bedding from the duck house, you know, once a week or so and just throw it into a little pool that then gravity feeds down to the, to the um, rice paddies. And the ducks also spend time in that pool, you know, manuring it really well. Um, but if someone didn't have animals at a homestead scale, you know, just human urine from the, the people, even if it's just one or two people living on a site, is, is you know, a ton of nutrients. Uh, as far as being able to grow a rice crop, you could probably grow, I haven't run the numbers, but each human being could probably grow far more rice than they could consume with their own, the only, with the nutrients they make every year in the form of urine. You know, probably, they put, there's probably still more nitrogen needed than, than for growing uh, the amount of rice that they could pr- consume in a year. The animal component's big. I mean, I think there's a huge need for filtering, you know, for, for assimilating nutrients in the, in the bottom portions and the lower elevations of most animal farms with any significant stocking density, you know, in the, in the country and in the world at large anyways. We're, we're losing a lot of nutrients off of many farms already. So, you know, here's a great way of, of capturing those nutrients. Another thing that's been kind of running through my mind when I think about what you're doing out there is, uh, well, of course, forests are a dominant feature on your landscape. What are going? What is going to be the role of tree crops and tree species um, as you develop this system? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I think 
you know, it really varies. I mean, this is a system, you know, rice is really a system for obviously open land, you know, full, full sun conditions. Uh, we're growing perennial crops uh, in between the rice paddies, you know, low-growing shrubs like sea berry, and we'll probably plant some ribes species and currants and gooseberries um, on, the, on the slopes between the terraces because there's still some useful real estate there. Uh, but then we're also growing tree crops to the north of the paddies to help encourage a very warm microclimate, which is good for the rice. Um, like Korean chestnut, um, American hybrid chestnuts, a bunch of nut crops. We'll probably in, insert some apples into that area. So we're always trying to, you know, put tree crops in the mix wherever we can, especially where the land is steep at all. Um, so they can, I think they can be grown side by side. I don't think there's necessarily a lot of direct connections that we need to make, although, of course, the more connections between components, the better. Um, you know, one could see having a masting crop next to patties, you know, like a nut crop that drops nuts and then you graze through that area, you know, before or after the rice season. So manure is being spread in that immediate area that washes into the patties. But really it's so easy to bring nutrients into a patty with a half inch or three quarter inch, you know, poly tubing from anywhere uphill on the landscape that it's you don't necessarily need to generate those the nutrients the plants need in that in that immediate area at all. We have a series of step pools. If you imagine a landscape that's broken up by terraces and and patties, that's really what our whole the whole systems research farm is, with a series of pools, just hand dug small pools, 50 to 100 gallons, throughout the landscape that the ducks spend time in that, you know, bedding from animals can be tossed into and, you know, churned up with a pitchfork, the nutrients kind of wrung out of, and then the material like the hay that, that's put in there is pulled out and thrown into the compost when a lot of its nutrients are into the solution, into the water. And then that water is just conveyed with half-inch and three-quarter-inch polytubing downhill to where the rice paddies are, which is about halfway up, our, up our, the slope of our research farm. So you start picturing a landscape that's just has water systems all over it, all over a slope, and those wa the, that water is then concentrated into places that need it, such as a rice paddy. We're also watering our perennial crops in the first half of the growing season with that water as well. So just the idea of fertigation is really the larger picture here. Rice paddies are just uh, just an, one example, really, of of the power of using nutrients in solution across a landscape. Um, and I think we, we should ask the question, well, what else can we grow in patties? Because it's really patty agriculture and water-based cultivation of plants uh, and animals too. That's, that's, that's the exciting part here. And we, we, should, we should be looking into, well, what else can we grow besides rice in, in patties, in patty systems or in water-based systems? There's examples all over the world of great aquaponic and aquaculture systems in, these, in northern climates, especially in the United States. We have very few examples. We need to really get, you know, get after what, what's possible there quickly <laughs> because there's, there's many opportunities yet, um, you know, yet known in these areas. Well, also, um, one thing that also occurs to me is it's a really good time to to make these terraces now while fossil fuels are still 
cheap and readily available. You know, I mean, we can make a lot of these patty, uh, you know, whether they be key line systems or just a series of ponds, but we can make a lot of these things for relatively cheap, uh, especially to w- compared to what it's going to cost us to make these in the future. Absolutely. That is a, I'm glad you brought that up because that's an enormous point. Uh, you know, these two patties, which is, let's say, enough is a great size for a homestead scale of rice. We're going to, let's say, grow 100 to 150 pounds of rice per year perpetually uh, in these two patties on a 40% slope. Those two patties were, were built with five gallons of diesel fuel, so $15, call it, of diesel fuel, and five hours of my own time sitting on a mini excavator. Can you imagine, you know, if you could go back to even 100 years or much less 500 years or 1,000 years ago when people were making, you know, dedicating whole generations of human beings to terrace hillsides because they knew it was worth it to terrace these hillsides, even at huge expense in, of human energy. Um, and today we can make, like you're saying, we can make these, these earthworks so quickly for next to nothing, really, for in, uh, relative to their value. I mean, these are permanent systems. You know, these, these patties here, major earthworks, will be in existence until the next glaciation. I mean, they'll last far, far longer than, uh, you know, even the best buildings or far longer than the oldest, you know, nut pines or, or bur oaks in our landscape. So they're essentially permanent features that, like you say, we can build very quickly now for, you know, an inexpensive investment for, I mean, you know, the return on an investment that we can get from earthworks like rice patties is, is phenomenal. We really should be doing it at the end of the, the cheap energy age here. We can't afford not to. Well, any, um, it seems also that pigs would be really well suited to this system. Any thoughts on including hogs in the system? Um, not hogs in particular. We're excited by the possibilities of, for the for duck integration in the system, not just by harvesting their nutrients in the form of water uphill and gravity feeding, as I was mentioning, but actually ducks in the patties. Um, there's a well-known book called The Power of Duck, which is about this to some extent. The, the synergy between cultivating ducks, eels, some fish, and rice is, is long known and has been practiced, I think, for, for hundreds if not thousands of years throughout the world. Um, you know, getting at, you know, looking into what else can be grown alongside the patties in synergy with the rice. You know, what's producing the resources the rice need, the rice needs like nitrogen. Um, and so, but, but it's challenging. Ducks will eat the grain if they're in there when the seed head is on. You know, our ducks, at least the kind we have, will, will actually you know, eat the rice. So I've had to keep the ducks away from the patties. But people have been able to figure out different ways of when the ducks are young and the rice crop, you know, even before planting the rice or when the rice is at a certain stage, being able to have some synergy there uh, between various animals and the rice. Uh, eels and fish that don't eat vegetation are also a big possibilities. So hogs, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think you could bring a variety of animals into the system, you know, when there's not the rice in the patties. I think actually hogs could be great to, to kind of puddle in the patties, you know, like you would do when you're making a pond, a small pond with hogs, where you, you know, excavate it and get hogs in there and get them making a wallow. You know, hogs can really create an impermeable water-holding basin. So hogs could be great for the actual mechanical 
you know, development, initial development of the patty and maybe puddling it in over time and certainly manuring it. Because you have to make a, a pretty much totally impermeable uh, basin to grow the rice within. You know, can't be, you can't be losing the water out of the bottom of it. Um, it. You can lose a little, but you really have to make it pretty much completely impermeable. So that can be challenging on well-drained soils. But it seems like if you built a little temporary fencing around that, you know, dig that terrace out, like you said, with a mini excavator, uh, build some fence around it, maybe bring, haul in some clay if you need it, and just uh, keep those hogs in there for several weeks, and it seems like they, yeah. do, they do a pretty good job of it for you. I mean, Absolutely. that's a good idea. Bring them bring some food and keep them in that spot, get them to turn it up and puddle it in. I think that could be fantastic. Okay. Yeah, we didn't need to do that here. Well, partly I didn't. I don't have hogs, but um, we we have pretty tight soils that that hold the water pretty well. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of situations where hogs are, you know, hogs are, are mini excavators in them themselves to some extent. They just leave a good bit of fertility behind, which is nice. Well, what about? Um, do you have any plans to process the waste straw with mushroom mycelium? Oh, that's a good question. I, I'm probably going to use the straw just as mulch in the gardens, on the vegetable gardens. It's just fantastic mulch. It's really beautiful stuff. You can lay it down very evenly. Um, but, you know, it, it could yeah, it could be consumed pretty well. But we, we grow a, a few varieties of mushrooms here on site already, and um, I haven't thought about actually the straw being useful for that, but it's certainly the the wine cap strafari mushrooms that we grow would would probably do very well in straw we grow them on wood chips right now but um yeah mushrooms straw and mushrooms is a real synergy there for sure for for a rice growing operation well i'll tell you that uh the elm oyster mushroom will harvest that rice straw aggressively and potentially mm. even increase your yields in your garden so if you right. if you hit it pretty heavy with the elm oyster and then uh just uh mulch your garden with that i mean especially in your climate i mean it seems like you would just get bumper crops yeah yeah definitely yeah there's a lot of a lot of possible synergy with the rice you know with the rice crop whether it's the rice itself or um, the straw you know the waste straw i mean i think feeding growing rice as a potential fodder crop is is something that's interesting um to feed to chickens for instance or other other animals you know, I mean, I think grain, you know, the role of grain in a homestead permaculture system, you know, in a, in a highly diverse you know, agroecological system is, is really key. And we've been, we've been down on grain in the permaculture community for a long time because there's so many examples of you know, overgraining the planet and, and of how unsustainable grain has been. But that doesn't mean it all has to be unsustainable. And rice is this kind of exception to the rule to some extent. And the fantastic thing about grain is it's like currency. I mean, everything eats it in a system. You'll never have too much grain. You know, you have more grain than you can eat, well, feed it to the chickens or the ducks or the sheep or, you know, the goats, whatever it is. It's, anything eats it. Uh, I think grain was, you know, once a form of currency because it's so universally valued. Um, you can have too much, you know, you have too many vegetables. You can have too much meat. You know, these things grain stores very long time with no electricity. It doesn't need a root cellar. It doesn't need freezing. Uh, it can keep for years. So, 
we need grain, I think, or it's certainly nice to have some grain, and, and here's one option. Well, it seems to me like the the grain issue, you know, when you actually dig into it a little bit, I mean, with the example of Fukuoka and with the example now that uh, Colin Sice in Australia with the pasture cropping, um, mm. with what you're doing now with the rice, uh, with the uh, the Power of Duck, the book that you mentioned, Takao Furuno, um, also some of the work that Rodale has done over the years. I mean, it seems like this issue and now the work that uh, Wes Jackson, kind of longer term stuff, but... Uh, that they're now starting to roll out this Kernza perennial uh, perennial grain crop. I guess it's some kind of corn or something. But uh, it seems like the the grain question has kind of been resolved by the permaculture community, and uh, it's a matter of transferring the technology now, and and obviously continuing to develop it like you're doing. Uh, what do you see are going to be the obstacles to really getting this out there like like it needs to? Yeah, that's a great question, and that hits on something I wanted to mention about the biggest challenge, which may be processing, um, is a big one. It's not, it's not, rice holds onto its hull very tightly, so it's not easy to process, but I'll talk about that in a sec. I think, I, I guess I would think the two big challenges, the two primary challenges to really disseminating this technology, this technique and technology and, and having people really grow rice, um, is, is really the processing and, and the construction of the patties. I don't think the construction of the patties is a big one, but it is something that, you know, you can grow vegetables, you can make a bed with some shovels and a lot of hard work, and making a patty with just shovels certainly is doable. It's how it was, has been done until very recent times, but it's a lot of moving material. So having access to a mini excavator or a friend or someone who knows how to run one or, or the capital to, to finance constructing a patty or series of patties um, and also water holding systems that can feed the patties is, is in some ways just as important um, is key and that's, that, that's a limiting factor. I mean, I, I can run a small excavator and use it for other work in our business anyway, so it was easy for me to do. But, you know, you need access to excavation or a lot of digging capacity, you know, human digging capacity, which is certainly possible in parts of the world more than others. And then um, the processing is the other big one. It, so, you know, grain, you have to be able to get the, the hull off without cracking the grain, and that's a real trick. Um, you don't need to de-hull it to feed it. To, I don't think to feed to most any animals. I mean, certainly chickens and other animals will just eat it with the hull on. Um, but for human consumption, you know, we need a way to process that. And this year, I'll probably bring it to a grain mill that can that can do it locally. Um, but I think it's the next part of this project, uh, in part, is to develop a home scale or community scale processing unit that's ideally powered by a bicycle. You know, sit on a bike, pedal away, and process grain pretty rapidly. Then that's I'm sure that's totally doable. People have done that with other with other you know, products like beans, but rice is a little trickier to, to actually de-hull. Um, but once, once that's figured out, and it to some extent already is figured out, we just need to figure out how to make those things affordable, make those processors affordably, those mills, they're easy, to, and they'd be very easy to retrofit onto a, a bike-powered unit or something that's, you know, 120 volts or more that could be a community-scale system. So there's so many community scale pieces of infrastructure we need as we enter 
you know, coming age of expensive energy. And I think milling is certainly one of those, and not just saw milling, but milling of grains. So you can imagine on the road, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years, that communities have their own infrastructure, shared infrastructure to process some of these products. You know, it would be a shame if everyone has to, you know, make or buy their own grain mill. You only need it for one time of the year. It's a perfect technology to, to share in the investment of by a group of people. Well, I would encourage you to maybe check out what the folks at uh, the Full Belly Project are doing. I know that uh, last time I checked on some of their work, they were do- working on a bicycle-type attachment. Now, for a nut sheller, they have the universal nut sheller that they've developed over there, and that's all open source. But it seems like they were working on something that would be real modular to connect to other things. And also, I would not at all be surprised if uh, Anil Gupta, who is the uh, director of the Honeybee Network, has not already worked with uh, a farmer who's already kind of developed this technology in India. So uh, I would definitely encourage you to maybe get in touch with some of those folks. And, I mean, they might have something that they can just send you some photos of and you can just take that off the shelf and implement it automatically. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's great. Thanks for some of those links because yeah, the grain, you know, the, the technology for processing the grain is already there. We just need to really transfer it and, and develop these systems wherever we're growing this, these grains. Well, Ben Falk, I'd like to thank you for uh, coming back on the Agro Innovations Podcast and talking about um, this rice crop that you're working with and uh, for definitely providing, I think, our listeners with some food for thought as this uh, permaculture revolution continues. Well, thanks to you, Frank, for doing all this great work and uh, spreading the word. And I just would pass, you know, pass on the plug to uh, check out these patties. We have some great photos of, of what's going on here at our website at wholesystemsdesign.com, and you can see all aspects of the system. It's a very visual farming system. So thanks a lot. Appreciate well, I will, I will look those photos up, and I will include them in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Great. Well, that concludes my interview with permaculture designer Ben Falk. I'd like to once again thank Ben for participating in this interview, and I hope that the listeners to the podcast enjoyed it. I would encourage listeners to check out the show notes for this episode. There I will be linking to the photos that Ben mentioned at the end of this interview. And uh, as he said, it's a very visual system, so please uh, go check those photos out and get a feel for the work that he is doing. And hopefully uh, those of you who are out there who are in a position to replicate some of his results I would strongly encourage you to do so. Just a reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.